Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. When the brain's injured, there's little medicine can do right now to repair it. But imagine the body could fix itself. Eric Shapiro is investigating the potential of activating dormant stem cells to repair damaged tissue. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs and Communications, talking with Professor Shapiro about his efforts to see and ultimately manipulate stem cells in the human body. So your lab was the first to actually see endogenous stem cells in action. Can you tell me briefly how you achieved that? Sure. Well, I think see is an interesting word in, in essence because Others had actually seen endogenous stem cells in other assays and time-lapse immunohistochemistry and even in microscopic analysis of live uh, cells and tissue sections. What what we did is we took uh, an approach that we often take with MRI is that we have a tool that enables serial imaging of, uh, of live animals and to try to take histological methodologies and apply them through to longitudinal studies, we thought to ourselves, well, this is an interesting model because of its importance, but also because of the actual challenge in doing so. Mm -hmm. And so there's these endogenous stem cells that are inside the brain. They line the ventricle. And uh, our our idea was to shotgun approach, um, put some magnetic particles near where these cells are. And when these cells move, they'll carry the beads with them and we'll be able to use MRI to see this. Mm-hmm. And for as many reasons as it does work, I can think of 20 reasons why it shouldn't have worked, uh, but yet it worked. And you know, other groups have repeated it. There's been, you know, a half dozen papers using it for uh, other studies now, and you know, it, it, we're, we're sort of proud of how this came about. So that was that was step one, and that was a big achievement in itself. But now you actually want to get these stem cells following orders. How are you going to do that? So how these cells move is, well, becoming more well-known. We know that there are certain chemicals that these cells are attracted to, both in everyday normal uh, uh, environment, but also in certain diseases. So certain diseases like stroke or cancer, Mm -hmm. there are chemicals that are given off by cells in the brain which coax these cells naturally to move towards either a glioma or to a stroke site, or in the case of just everyday uh, uh, normal brains, uh, to move along their normal migration pathways. Mm-hmm. And we basically are, 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 are going to assay a number of these, what are called chemoattractants, and their ability to indeed get these endogenous cells to move to an ectopic location of the brain. Um, you know, wh- what we do with them once they're there you know, that's that's still to be determined, but I think a major breakthrough would just be able to coax a cell mm-hmm. to move to an ectopic location by the use of these chemoattractants. So, okay, forgive my ignorance. The chemoattractants would suggest to me that the body sort of wants to send the stem cells there on its own to start with. No, that's an interesting question because... Indeed, that happens. So, for example, if you uh, if you give a rat a certain kind of stroke, and maybe there's some evidence that this happens in humans as well. Um, indeed, these neural stem cells will go to the stroke site. the The problem is is that 
especially in humans, um, they don't really do very much. You don't mm-hmm. really cure the stroke. You don't reestablish neuronal um, connections and axons don't project properly. And so there's a number of reasons why this might be the case. Either cells don't get there in enough number. Maybe they arrive at too mature a stage. Um, so our hypothesis, and, and we're starting with something simple that we can test, is whether or not we can get cells to arrive in large numbers. Mm-hmm. Might a large number of cells compared to you know, the drizzling of cells that actually happens now, um, might that make an impact? And if that in and of itself doesn't make an impact, it provides a landscape for secondary manipulation of those cells. Just getting the cells there, I think, um, gives us a lot of flexibility in mm-hmm. what we could do next. Mm-hmm. So where are you in the process? Um, labs, animal models, what? So we, we've taken, in essence, two approaches. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, a, a brazen kind of individual. So the first thing we did was we just went to the end. We tried, we, we, we made some strokes. We implanted some osmotic pumps containing these chemoattractants into the stroke site. Mm-hmm. And we said, let's just see if we can sort of hit a home run. Mm-hmm. And we didn't get a lot of positive results. And, you know, okay, fine. We gave it a, we gave it a try. We've been encouraged to be high risk, high gain. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes maybe we take a little bit too, <laughs> too far. Um, but now we're stepping back, reading the literature more carefully. And what we've discovered is that the uh, effects of these chemoattractants is remarkably dose dependent. You give too much or too little, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. You give just the right amount and you get these wonderful results. So what we're doing now is stepping back a little bit, titrating these chemicals in cell culture experiments to see what are the concentrations necessary to indeed promote neurogenesis, promote migration. And from there, we can now design the experiment a little bit better in terms of delivering not just the right chemoattractant, but the right chemoattractant with the right concentration gradients such that mm-hmm. these things will work a little bit better. So you know, we, we, we step back uh, just a little bit in our approach. You mentioned this high-risk, high-gain orientation. This is pretty creative, outside-the-box stuff. It could yield wonderful results or not, and it's expensive. How do you feel about that, and how do the people you work for feel about that? So, well, to start with the people that I work for, you know, I have a number of graduate students. I have a postdoc. There's some professional scientists that work in the lab, and there's there's undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And everybody, well, in essence, I have different obligations to the people who work in the lab. The graduate students, my primary obligation is to educate them on how to do professional science. And so for them, in essence, the journey is more important than the sort of final product. I mean, clearly they'd like to have wonderful successes, but for them just being part of the journey of figuring all this out, I think, in and of itself is a worthy goal you know, and I've tried to impart that upon them. Although, to be honest, sometimes, you know, at a place like Yale, it's a little bit tough where everything is sort of results and what did you patent and are you mm-hmm. in nature neuroscience or not. So for the graduate students, it's primarily focused there. The The lead individual on this project is a postdoc. And now my, 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 my obligations to the postdoc are a little bit different. It's to hand someone what is undoubtedly a challenging project and to work with this individual to, you know, uh, uh, to come up with interesting experiments to test the hypotheses and to really have this person begin to take a lead in certain aspects of the project mm-hmm. and to give them the freedom to propose something, test it out, 
maybe it works maybe it doesn't work um and and uh, you know we can see where we go from there undoubtedly again even if something doesn't work such as our experiment where we tried to hit the home run we learned a few things and now we're able to go back and so again the scientific process there is just as valuable in terms of you know myself putting a, a lot trust me i have a lot invested in this project you know uh one of the things i think that's really been encouraged of me is this high risk high gain thing and so mm-hmm. i'm actually you know i i've taken the approach that because i've been encouraged so much by the administration by 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 uh, mentors of myself clearly by the nih that if it doesn't work it's not something that will be I don't know, look down on or mm-hmm. be disappointed with because, you know, I- indeed this is a high-risk, high-game project. And so I-, I think it would be looked upon as, you know, hey, you gave it a nice try. Not everything is expected to work, but along the way you've done some really neat work and you've spawned other projects, which maybe right. they themselves have become you know, much more interesting. Right. You know, you arrived at Yale at a time when big investments were being made in diagnostic radiology, in stem cell research. Could you have gotten this far without that kind of institutional core? Well, you know, it's interesting. I went to college at a small uh, liberal arts college uh, in upstate New York, uh, SUNY Binghamton. And, you know, I was actually looking at the chemistry department just a couple of days ago for something uh-huh. else to, to interact with a, with a chemist there. And I was looking at the research program there and I was thinking to myself, could I do this there? And, mm-hmm. and I, and quite honestly, and, and maybe I'm a little bit sad to say, I, I definitely don't think that this kind of work could be done there, at least with the scale and the integration that's required to do these kind of things. So for example, one of the nice things about having a stem cell center, I mean, not just people who do stem cell research, but a stem cell center is all mm-hmm. the core equipment that's available. I mean, we can book the microscope tomorrow for four hours on the microscope, yeah. the flow cytometry equipment, yeah. you know, storing our, our, our cells in liquid nitrogen containers, and you know, a dozen or so stem cell experts to interact with. And so I think just the density of things that we have at our disposal mm-hmm because of the stem cell center, is, 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 is truly remarkable. And in addition to that, in the diagnostic imaging, I mean, here in the radiology department, we have, you know, a really a world-class integrated imaging suite. We have uh, my laboratory just next door. I mean, just this morning before the interview, we're, 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 we're taking samples from our lab, throwing them in the MRI machine, processing the data, mm-hmm. and, and, and integrating it into our spreadsheets. And Something like that, even at my graduate school, which was a premier graduate school, because we didn't have the kind of MRI machines that we needed down the hall from us, we had yeah. them in the hospital, we had to walk, you know, it, uh, you know, there's, there's barriers to, right. to moving very fast. And here we can move, I think we can move very fast. There's not a lot of barriers. A lot of the work that we're discussing is being funded by an NAH New Innovator Award, which is a very competitive grant to get. Um, but you were laying the foundation for this when you were a YCCI scholar. Tell me a little bit about how that influenced your career. Um, so first of all, becoming the YCCI scholar was was, you know, the first almost pat on the back that, you know, these what you might think are crazy ideas or maybe uh-huh. they're not so crazy and maybe yeah. they're worth pursuing, and so. You know, straight up, the YCCI Scholar Award was a tremendous confidence boost. I mean, there's, I mean, 
I don't think I would have gone on to propose some of those things that I proposed in the Innovator Award without having gotten that first stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that being said, it was incredibly valuable. I, I think what the YCCI scholarship and the interactions with YCCI have impressed upon me and my research have been, uh, in essence, a little bit passive, not so much active. So, for example, before writing the New Innovator Award, I don't know that I would have been able to design the study mm-hmm. as well as I know now. And a lot of that came from sitting in on the lectures from the other YCCI scholars and the YCCI professors, learning how to design studies, number of co- you know, number of individuals and cohorts, power analysis, setting up controls properly, mm-hmm. those kind of things. I, I, I don't think I was as good as I was after writing it. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of the proposal involved some details you know, within that. The other thing that I really like about the YCCI um, and, and, and one of the things that we were able to, I think, hopefully position ourselves you know, you know, uh, very nicely in the field is quite often, at least in chemistry or, 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 or you know, biomaterials, you want to make something and you want to take it all the way through to, I don't know, clinic or something like mm-hmm. that, right? And if you don't have a clinical trials or, or you know, a, a clinical center for helping you with that, quite often you have to pass that on to someone else. And so what the YCCI scholarship enables me to do, and uh, it makes me feel comfortable proposing, is mm-hmm. to say we're going to make something in the lab. And we have the wherewithal here at Yale to indeed see it through to an end point. And not, uh, we're going to develop something and you know, hopefully some other big lab will pick this up or something mm-hmm. like that. I you know, truly feel that some of the things that we're making in the lab, we really can develop all the way through to preclinical use here with all the resources that we have. And you know, I really look forward to, to becoming more integrated in that process. What does that mean for both the speed of translation and also the quality to have the original investigator stay with the project to the end? You know, it's interesting. We haven't, we haven't yet come upon that stage, but, you know, I think... I, I think there are, there are nuances to projects. So, for example, if I were to go to a chemistry paper and and take that chemistry paper and reproduce it in my lab, sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. Because there's nuances to project. There's the way something looks. I look at it under the microscope. It just doesn't look right, you know. And so, being able to be a part of that will enable us to say, well, you know, those 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 particles you're using, they they just don't look right. That's that's not the right prep. That's mm-hmm. not where to go, or the image that you've acquired. You know, uh, you can't get the data from the way that you've acquired the image. Let's go back and let's be a little bit more involved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm a very hands-on people. You can ask the people in my lab. Sometimes I'm annoyingly hands-on. <laughs> um, and so, f- you know, personally for me, being able to, you know, take care of all of that in one integrated center will be, you know, at least for me, will be remarkably valuable. And, you know, I, I cherish that opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. That was Assistant Professor of Diagnostic Radiology Eric Shapiro talking about his work with endogenous stem cells and its potential in brain injury and disease.